Hello, and welcome back to 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, bringing to you this week news from all six inhabited continents on the world. Don't know why I'm excited about that. It's bad to have this much fascist news in a week. Gotta calm it down, folks. Anyway, this week we're talking about the United States, Brazil, Canada, France, New Zealand, Thailand, South Africa, and a see you in hell that's the celebration of a dead right-winger from Nazi Germany. Starting off in the United States, well, this one kind of spans the entire Anglophone world. Rupert Murdoch is stepping down from his leadership position at Fox and News Corp. Murdoch is an Australian national, or was Australian by birth, and is the longtime leader of Fox and News Corp, the leading right-wing propagandist organization since the 1980s. Fox and News Corp collectively own Fox News, The Wall Street Journal, The New York Post, and HarperCollins in the United States. In the United Kingdom, they own The Sun and The Times. And in Australia, they own The Daily Telegraph and Sky News. The organization will be taken over by Lachlan Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch's eldest son. It remains to be seen how this will affect the relationship between the international multimedia empire and the global rise of the right wing. Moving on to more specifically United States news, Donald Trump and more specifically the Trump Organization, the umbrella corporation that runs a bunch of Trump business ventures, have lost their civil case in New York. A judge in New York found that Trump and his family businesses lied about the worth of their properties in order to secure massively larger bank loans than they would otherwise deserve. The judge, as a result, ordered a cancellation of business certificates for the Trump Organization in the state of New York. This could severely hurt the bottom line of the Trump Organization, which relies on a lot of these big properties, you know, like hotels and other large buildings, you know, big office buildings and stuff like that in New York in order to make the massive amount of money that it needs in order to function. However, as it's become clear, this is somewhat of a paper organization, right? It appears to be worth massive amounts of money, but is potentially not. Trump and his allies are calling foul and saying that they are being unfairly attacked by activist judges, and they pledge to appeal all of these decisions. However, it seems that the judge who decided on this case basically thought that like they were being completely ridiculous and that they didn't have a leg to stand on. Continuing on with more disturbing Trump news, Donald Trump and United States Representative Paul Gosar have said that the outgoing Joint Chiefs of Staff Chairman, Mark Miley, deserves the death penalty. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with how the United States, you know, federal government handling of the military works, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff is the top-level military official in the United States. It rotates around amongst the branches of the United States military. In this case, Mark Miley is a, an army general, and he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, so the, the leader of the United States military, directly under the president, and he was in that position from 2019 up until the present. This is because this is not a political position in the United States. It's a military position. So this means that he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs during the conclusion of Donald Trump's administration, which featured a lot of saber rattling against China, and also Donald Trump's attempted coup. Now, this is precisely where Trump and Gosar's problem with Miley lies. They thought that Miley didn't demonstrate enough loyalty, you know, enough fealty to Donald Trump at the conclusion of his office. 
And specifically, they claim that Mark Miley committed treason by contacting the leaders of foreign militaries, essentially his opposite counterparts in Europe, but especially and damningly in Trump and Gosar's eyes in China. They say that Miley talked to these people, sort of behind the back of the president, in order to de-escalate tensions, specifically between the United States and China, which Trump was really flaring in the 2020 election. So Miley was trying to say to the Chinese army, like, listen, this guy's just saber rattling. We're not going to try to attack you. This is just an election. Don't worry about it. And Trump is saying that that's treason and that, you know, th these are in his words, in different times, the penalty would have been death. Now, this might sound like sort of Trump rhetoric shit, but I got to assure you, they actually mean this. If they get what they want, they would be able to kill people like Mark Miley for political crimes, essentially. And moving on to another story about the relationship between the military and extremely right-wing elected officials, let's talk about Brazil. There are further ongoing investigations in the interference into Brazilian elections and also emerging evidence about Bolsonaro's plans to stage a coup to prevent his opponent and current president of Brazil, Lula, from becoming the president. These ongoing investigations involve the highway police in Brazil. This is the Policia Rodovaria Federal. In Brazil, they control the entire highway system. Essentially, they are the, the federal-level highway police. And it was apparent on election day, on the first round of the Brazilian election last year, that they were engaged in electoral disruption. They were working with Bolsonaro in order to prevent people from Lula districts from getting to the polls on election day. Now, there are more and more investigations about this and more and more evidence is becoming apparent about their involvement in these schemes. And a lot of this is coming because of the plea bargain and the just like just confessing of Mauro Cid, a former aide of Jair Bolsonaro, somebody that I've talked about quite a bit on this podcast so far. Additionally, speaking of the actual attempted coup that Bolsonaro did stage on January 8th of this year, the defendants in that case are saying like, hey, it's really unfair to prosecute us for the actions that we participate in because like a lot of other people did it. That, you know, that's essentially their, their, their defense that they're trying to offer in these cases that are coming to court. But uh, that's not going to work <laughs> because just because the fact that you were part of a treasonous crowd doesn't mean that you weren't yourself committing treason. Finally, in Brazil, I, I want to want to really emphasize this one. This one really takes the cake. Mauro Cid has testified that Jair Bolsonaro met with the military to talk about staging a coup. Now, this is something that anybody who knew about Bolsonaro, who knows about the history of military coups, not just in Latin America, but around the world, and who knows about how the right wing works, you know, this is something that could have been predicted for a long time. And it is something that, you know, I am not surprised by. But the real surprise to me is that we know about it now, as opposed to like in 20 or 30 years, they must really have something on this Mauro Cid guy. Cid has said that in a secret meeting, on December 18th, 2022, Bolsonaro met with the leaders of the Brazilian military branches. In Brazil, this is, you know, the army, the navy, the federal police, people like that. Sid says that the navy was interested in the coup and said like, yeah, we'll go along with you. Like that, the, yes, he is saying that the leaders of the Brazilian navy said, sure, let's stage a coup to prevent Lula from becoming the president. And that the army said no. 
and that, that was that. That's why it didn't happen, because he would need both the army and the navy, and probably the federal police as well, in order to make this work. The army didn't want to, and so it didn't happen. Bolsonaro says that it's legal to talk about whatever you want, and that he was just floating ideas, not trying to stage a coup in order to prevent his uh, successor from succeeding him as the president of Brazil. Recall that very shortly after this secret meeting on December 18th, Bolsonaro fled Brazil. He left the country on December 31st and didn't come back until a couple months later. Moving on to Canada, posters for whites-only parenting groups have been found in Metro Vancouver, the second largest metropolitan area in Canada. These posters say that this group wants, quote, proud parents of European children to join the organization, and that they aren't, you know, they're not racist, they just want a place where kids can play with kids who look like them. In Vancouver, the predominant non-white ethnicity is people of East Asian descent, and so this is being investigated as an anti-Asian act of hate. And the Canadian police, the Canadian authorities are looking into this because, you know, this shit is actually kind of illegal in Canada. Moving on to France, Marianne Le Pen might stand trial for embezzlement of EU funds. French prosecutors have put forth a possible case to French judges who are hearing this case. It's possible that it might go to court. It's not in court yet, but it might. The case involves her, her father, uh, and over a dozen other aides of her organization, her party, which is called National Rally now, but which used to be called National Front, in the past when she and her father ran for the French presidential seat several times. It's possible that this might bring them down, and it's also possible that it will get kicked down the road and that she might run for president again before anything in this case really sees the light of day. Moving on to New Zealand, it's possible that a nationalist party is going to return to the New Zealand parliament. This party is called New Zealand First. It's a nationalist party that is run by a man of mixed race uh, descent. He is part white and part Maori, who are the predominant indigenous group in New Zealand. New Zealand First is an anti-immigrant group, but it also has a bunch of pro-safety net policies, and it believes in the provision of you know, government benefits to people who are from New Zealand, which in its mind are white settlers and people of Maori descent, right? That's that's what they imagine. So the immigrants that they are opposed to are people from South Asia, people from Africa, and people from East Asia. They think that those people should be excluded from New Zealand politics and New Zealand life. This makes the party a very confusing thing for a lot of mainstream commentators because they're like, well, obviously being racist is, an, is, is a right-wing thing. You know, yeah, being opposed to immigration is generally agreed to be a right-wing perspective. However, they get confused about the fact that they support any kind of, you know, social services and social welfare policies. And they think like, okay, well, this makes them a sort of like confusing third-way type thing. Uh, I, I am here to tell you that no, that is not confusing at all. That is a standard part of the right-wing playbook. It's just that very recently since the 1970s, 80s, and 90s, right-wing parties have become neoliberal parties that are also libertarian parties. That's a very recent phenomenon, and we are increasingly seeing that being unraveled. New Zealand First is an extremely good example of this kind of party, a party that is nationalistic, 
both in the sense that it wants to exclude people who it believes don't belong in the country, and also nationalistic in that it wants to provide for the people that it thinks do belong in the country, right? Those things are unified for them. Moving on to Thailand, Thai pro-democracy activists have been persecuted for speaking against the monarchy. The Thai monarchy has vast social power and its democratic governance in the country is extremely limited. These Thai activists, including several attorneys, have been jailed for calling out the monarchy's use of its extensive powers in order to repress democratic perspectives and democratic activism. And moving on to South Africa. In South Africa, an anti-immigrant militant organization has formed an official political party. The group is called Operation Dudula. Uh, Dudula means to kick out or, you know, like to eject or evict people in Zulu. The organization is predominantly run by black South Africans, and it is organized to attack migrants, not just people who are from neighboring African countries, but also people who are from the Middle East and from South Africa. The organization wants all foreign nationals deported, and it wants them deported just like unceremoniously, right? It just wants them to be kicked out of the country. Previously, it was an unabashedly militant organization. It would stage marches and just like attack people and businesses in predominantly non-South African neighborhoods in cities in South Africa, for example, Johannesburg and Pretoria. But now it's saying that it's moving away from this openly militant posture and is going to stand 1,500 candidates for political posts in South Africa. This is an alarming escalation of South African nationalism and specifically a, a different type of South African nationalism than apartheid South African nationalism. Finally, going to close out this week, like I do every week with See You in Hell, a segment celebrating the deaths of prominent right-wing figures in history. This week, I got your basic Nazi party guy. His name is Josef Birknell. Uh, his name includes an umlaut, and I do not speak German. My apologies. Birknell was born in 1895 in the Bavarian Palatinate, think like South-ish Western Germany. He volunteered for service in World War I, went back to school to become a teacher, and was then a headmaster. And yes, if the stereotype that you had in your mind was that people who are the principals of schools are Nazis, then you're right. He was a lifelong Nazi from the incipient years of the party, which he joined in 1925, having a long history of involvement in proto-fascist nationalist organizations in Germany. He entered the German parliament, the Reichstag, in 1930 as a member of the Nazi party, and then became Gauleiter, which is a leader of the Nazi party in his area. He was also then tasked with a big important thing, which was the integration of a part of Germany that had been occupied by the United Kingdom and France after World War I into the new state of Nazi Germany starting in 1933. And this is what really kicked off his career. His success in administering this quote-unquote reintegration of this territory into fascist Germany made him a perfect choice for an extremely important post in Nazi Germany, which was the party's man in charge of the Anschluss, the absorption of Austria into Germany. Because the Nazi German state envisioned this as essentially exactly the same thing as what he had previously done on a smaller scale, he was put in charge of it, and he moved to Vienna and became the Gauleiter of essentially Austria and the Viennese area. There, he participated in the Holocaust as a deporter of Jewish people, and also then later facilitated their murder and their being sent to extermination and concentration camps. He was successful in the Anschluss in a sort of bureaucratic way, 
but he was extremely unsuccessful in getting Ger like German Austrians on his side. He was himself massively corrupt, but he was also an ass when it came to the corruption of others. So he was prosecuting other people for corruption while being extremely corrupt himself, which is not how you get the, you know, the, the local leaders on your side, right? As a result of this, and also because of the war, he was moved back to his home territory in Germany, where he remained until his death. And I am sorry to tell you that this guy did not get his just desserts. He did not get his comeuppance for being a Nazi. Unfortunately, he did not die at the justice of the invading allies or of partisans. He died of a series of blood infections and intestinal failures, um, whose causes are unclear because of, you know, 1940s medicine, just before the allies would have invaded his territory, you know, in German proper, like, like just over the side of the French border. He died this week in history, today actually, the 28th of September, 1944. So, Josef Bergnum, we will see you in hell. Right, that was 15 Minutes of Fascism, a sadly topical podcast covering the global rise of the radical right. I'm Dr. Craig Johnson, thank you Sleepy Kitty Arts and Sleepy Kitty Music for intro, outro, and graphics. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, share, and subscribe. Please leave a review on whatever it is you're listening to this on. Check out my Patreon at patreon.com slash 15 Minutes of Fascism. That's 15 Minutes of Fascism spelled out in all one word. That's also where you can reach me on Gmail, 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com. I'm on Twitter at Hist of the Right, that's H I S T of the Right, and Fascism15. I'm also on Blue Sky at 15 M I N S O F F A S C. And if you're not on Blue Sky and want to be, email me at 15 minutes of fascism at gmail.com and I can get you an invite code. All right, thanks very much, and I will talk to you next week.